0: Dear friend, you're faithful in what you're doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner that honours God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, But Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Well, without a doubt, the uh, missionary story that has had the greatest impact on my life, is that of John G. Payton, the Scottish Presbyterian who took the gospel to the New Hebrides Islands in the middle 1800s. Payton tells his own startling story of going to the islands and devoting his life uh, to the difficult task of seeing people converted to faith in Jesus and establishing a church there. And it was a task filled with many hardships, starting even before he left Scotland, and you can just listen to this excerpt written by Peyton about the difficulty of saying goodbye to his father. And remember, you know, as you listen to this, that this is before Facebook, this is before email, this is before phones, this is before planes. Saying goodbye meant saying goodbye often. Here's what Peyton said. He said, My dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsel and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday, and tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then. His tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer In tears we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and when about to turn a corner in the road when he would lose sight of me. I looked back and saw him still standing with head uncovered where I had left him, gazing after me. Waving my hat and goodbye, I was round the corner and out of sight in an instant, but my heart was too full and sore to carry me further, so I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me. And after he had gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face towards home, and began to return. His head still uncovered and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze. Well, John Payton landed on the island of Tana in the South Pacific with his new wife, Mary, in November 1858. Fraught with dangers from the start, the island was filled with cannibals, so you know, tribes who ate people. And three months after they arrived, Mary gave birth to their first son. But both Mary and the son, the baby, soon died from tropical fever. Peyton buried his wife and child together, but he had to spend his nights sleeping on the grave just to protect them from the local cannibals. And most of us in this room, we don't, probably none of us in this room, face such extreme challenges. I think all of us will agree that sometimes life can be difficult, even for Christians. And some people might wonder is it really worth going through all the trouble? to continue to honoring the Lord? Is, is life worth it? You know, can I keep my belief in God private? Why, why go through all the trouble of obeying the Bible's commands in my daily life and being involved in a church and telling others about Jesus? If it's just going to bring hardship and challenges? Well, Here's how one person answers those questions. He says there are two basic answers for my, why you might go to all the trouble. Depending on whether you're really a believer, you go through the trouble either for God and His Gospel or for yourself. In the first case, real truth and love show themselves as you give yourselves to others. You want everyone around you to know the good news about Jesus. But in the second case, your life is simply a show, fueled by ambition and directed by self-interest. We're going to actually see both of these motives show up in 3 John. In the heart of this letter, verses 5-10, to John presents us with, with two kinds of church members. There's Gaius, and there's Diotrephes. And these two individuals present us with two patterns for life in the church. Two ways of being a church member. And within the church, you often find those who spend their lives for the Gospel, and you find those who spend their lives on themselves. Now note, just here at the beginning of this sermon, both kinds of people are found within the church. Both groups profess to be Christians. And we have an opportunity to examine ourselves this evening to see which kind of church member we're going to be, which kind of church member we are. So first, this evening, we'll spend time considering those who spend their lives for the Gospel. And then we'll look at those who spend their lives on themselves. Those are the two angles we're going to look at. Those who spend their lives for the Gospel and those who spend their lives on themselves. Let's look first at those who spend their lives for the Gospel. And we can just consider Gaius' example in verses 5-7. to This is a man who spends his life for the Gospel. He lives out his faith. Look at what John says about him in verse 5. He says, You are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. Gaius is faithful in what he does. And, And what is he doing according to these verses? Well, verse six, they have told the church about your love. See, Gaius loves these strangers that he's encountering. So I want to look at who Gaius loves and why he loves them and and how he loves them. Hopefully, we'll benefit from that. Who, Who does Gaius love in these verses? Well, verse five, these are strangers, but they are strangers who are brothers and sisters in Christ, they're fellow Christians. And that's all that Gaius needs to know about these strangers in order to practically love them. See, friends, the, the Gospel of Jesus turns strangers into family. You know, Much of the world is characterized by difference and division. Countries have borders. Governments have parties. Communities have families and bloodlines. And then there are the haves and the have-nots. There's the rich and the poor. There are different ethnicities And then there are friends and there are strangers. Sometimes a treaty or a truce can blur dividing lines. And sometimes a friend can become closer than a brother or sister. But only Jesus can make strangers into a family. Regardless of our many differences, we all have at least this one thing in common. We are sinners against the good God who created us, and therefore we are His enemies. And it is this estrangement from Him that also causes feuds between us. And yet, in love and grace, God has acted to save us by stepping into the world as a man. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He lived a life without sin and yet died the death that sinners deserve. He died on the cross in order to pay the punishment that our sins deserve. And then He rose from the dead so that now any who turn from their sins and trust in Him can become sons and daughters of God. And we who trust in Jesus are forgiven of our sins and we become children of God. But that's not all. We're sons and daughters because God has adopted us as His children. He's created a new family in Jesus Christ so that regardless of what divided us before, He now draws us together as brothers and sisters sealed by the blood of Jesus. we may not... Share a physical kinship, but our bond is actually sh- even stronger. We share spiritual brotherhood and sisterhood. And this is what Gaius knows, and so he welcomes these strangers as brothers and sisters in Christ. And why does he love fellow Christians in this way? Well, there's a couple motivations listed in these verses. Look at verse 7. It says, It was for the sake of the name that they went out. And the name, of course, here is talking about Jesus. It's the same expression found in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, where the apostles rejoiced because they had count, been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. Gaius loves these brothers and sisters because they had the right motivation, the same motivation that he and all the apostles had. They were moved by the gospel. This motivation is the reason why these brothers and sisters leave the comforts of their home to share Jesus with others. It's why John Payton, we talked about earlier, became a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. Years before he landed on the island, two other missionaries had gone there first, and they were eaten by cannibals minutes after arriving on the shore. And so it wasn't without good reason that one elderly man, a Mr. Dixon, tried to dissuade Peyton from going by saying, you're going to be eaten. You're going to be eaten by cannibals. Listen to Peyton's response. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and you will soon be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. He went out for the sake of the name. And this Gospel is also why the apostles were willing to suffer as they went out proclaiming the Gospel. And it's why Gaius was willing to love these brothers and sisters in Christ. We too must be motivated and moved by the Gospel. We too must work and love For the sake of the name. As one person says, that which is not for the sake of the gospel can be set aside. Our lives must be devoted to that which furthers the gospel and only that which furthers the gospel. It is the proper motivation. And it's this motivation that helps us, I think, get up on Sunday mornings after a busy, exhausting week to come to church, not simply to receive, but to serve. Is that how you think about Sunday mornings? as an opportunity to serve one another, fellow Christians, for the glory of Jesus' name. You know, One of the best ways that we can serve others on Sundays is to intentionally use the time before and after the service to love those who come. You know, ask how people are doing spiritually. Ask them how you can be praying for them. And then take the time to pray with them. Of course, this gospel motivation must carry us on through the rest of the week, too, as we have opportunities to love, serve, and help others, particularly our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's our motivation, the glory of Jesus' name. If you're accustomed to believing that we earn our way into God's favor, or that we earn our way into heaven by good works or making merit, the Christian motivation to serve for the sake of Christ may surprise you. See, for Christians, we don't work or serve or do any good thing in order to make merit before God, in order to to earn favor before God. Instead, we believe that our salvation is found in Jesus alone who died as payment for our sins. And since He rose from the dead and still lives, we now receive acceptance from God by placing our faith in Him. And we serve out of a heart of thankfulness Also, that we can show How great of a God He is. This evening, if you find yourself on this endless cycle of trying to earn God's favor, you can actually jump off that cycle. and You can simply trust in the Lord. And you will find favor through Christ. Well, John continues with another motivation in verse 8. He says, "We, we ought therefore to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth. So John here gives another motivation for loving fellow Christians so we can be fellow workers. So we may work together for the truth. We saw earlier what John means when he says the truth. This is shorthand for the Gospel message that Jesus Christ died for sinners. John sees it as a good thing that Christians work together for this truth. Apparently, more can be done for the truth when we come together than when we're apart. That idea might surprise you if you're at all familiar with some of the divisions that characterize Christianity. Right, There are different denominations, and churches too teach different, sometimes contradictory things. Sadly, sometimes churches even split. And it's not always clear whether they're splitting over matters of truth or matters of personality. And if you spend any time online, you may be tempted to think Christians argue with one another quite a bit. But John's letter reminds us that sometimes Jesus is an object of controversy. right? Sometimes Jesus has no problems causing strife when it's for His glory. John has no problems causing strife for the name of Jesus, so long as it's only for the name of Jesus. But I think in this letter, he also demonstrates a profound desire for Christians to work together, even commending Gaius for loving strangers simply because They're brothers and sisters in Christ. I think one of the ways that we can walk this balance between loving Christians simply because they're Christians and at the same time standing up for the truth is by learning what has often been called theological triage. That's a concept that was made famous by Albert Moeller, who's the president of the seminary that I graduated from. Here's how he describes that. Uh, If you go to a hospital room, you'll notice that the receptionists in an emergency room have to make quick evaluations about the urgency of of different medical conditions, right? What, What patients need to be rushed into surgery? Which patients can wait a while before they're examined? Well, this discipline is called triage, and we can apply it to the Christian life. All of God's truth is important, but some truth is more critical than others, so first level doctrine include those matters that are most central and essential to the Christian faith. We can think of those it's doctrine of the Trinity, the full deity and humanity of Jesus, justification by faith, the authority of Scripture, what is and is not sin. You know, if you get these things wrong, you get Jesus wrong. You get the gospel wrong. Denying these doctrines is a denial of Christianity itself. Then there's second level issues. These are the issues that Christians disagree on, even as they create some significant boundaries between believers. So these issues show up in denominational differences, such as church government and baptism, and some aspects of what the Bible teaches about men and women. So I know that here at Ambassador, you all baptize only those who are Christians because you believe that The Bible teaches that it's only those who have been born again that are members of the New Covenant community. And similarly, you teach that only qualified men can be pastors. I think that's right. However, while we might divide into different denominations or churches over these second-tier issues, and while discussions on these matters may become heated, we must not think that one's position on these issues places somebody outside of Christianity. Nor do we think that people are necessarily being unfaithful. We can disagree on these matters and yet maintain fellowship, even sometimes within the same church. Uh, And that that leads us to third-order doctrines. These are are those issues that really Christians can can disagree on uh, without really any significant problem uh, in any way. So how Christians think about the return of Christ often falls into this category. Now, I bring up theological triage because John commends working together with other Christians for the truth. And I too want to commend Ambassador to work with other Christians, even those that you have significant disagreements with on second and third level issues. As a church, you should uphold your statement of faith because you believe that it summarizes what the Bible teaches. But you should also stand ready to embrace all those who are motivated by Jesus and His Gospel as brothers and sisters in Christ, so you may work together for the truth and honor the name of Jesus. Now, how are we to love others according to these verses? How are we to work together? Well, John here commends Gaius' example. He demonstrates a a very practical love. Look at verses 6-8 to again. He says, "...they have told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner that honors God." It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such people so it may work together for the truth. Notice that John says in verse 8 that we ought to support these people. When we see a word like ought in the Bible, that's something we have to, we have to pay attention to. God's word is telling us something that, that we should do. And here, his word is calling us to show hospitality. Paul says in Romans 12.13, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Hebrews 13.2 tells us not to forget to show hospitality to strangers. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Why is there this emphasis in the New Testament on hospitality? Well, maybe it's because of what Jesus says in Matthew 10.40-42. He says, He who receives you receives me and he who receives me receives the one who sent me if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple i tell you the truth he will certainly not lose his reward in other words if we love jesus we will love his people we will love other christians we will show hospitality to them Now, the primary application of these verses is to show hospitality and support missionaries when they pass through your church. And I would certainly commend that to you as a practice. But I think a secondary application of these verses is to demonstrate a loving hospitality towards all Christians, towards all those who are motivated by the name of Jesus, towards all who are brothers and sisters in Christ. We ought to support such people, John writes. Now, for you men, in particular husbands, fathers, I want to I talk to you for a second. And I want to particularly encourage you to consider the ought of verse 8. This exhortation to show hospitality, notice, is not simply directed to wives and mothers and women, but to all of us. All Christians are comm- commanded to show hospitality as a spiritual leader of your home, you should lead your family in hospitality and even make your home a picture of love. A place where love and truth come together. Where holiness and mercy are both practiced. Where affection and authority are displayed. That's a a picture, I think, where Christian men are leading that provides a a powerful witness for the Lord. And churches, we show hospitality and support those who go out for the name want to remember to do it in a manner that honors God, like verse 6 says. It's a privilege to spend your life for the gospel. And you don't have to be a missionary to spend your life for the gospel. 3 John is written to encourage faithful church members on how they can get involved in the work of the gospel. So you share the gospel with those you meet. You show hospitality. You serve other Christians in a manner that honors God generously. Generously. Avoiding all kinds of stinginess. You're generous with your time. You're generous with your money. You're generous in the way you interact with people. I was struck by an example of a man profiled recently in Christianity Today. He's actually been a missionary in Thailand for 60 years. And one of his disciples commented about his ability to focus on and invest in each individual that he was talking to. This is what was said about him. He doesn't have any agenda except you. I wonder if those that you welcome into your home or share a meal with or pray with can say the same about you. Brothers and sisters, let us serve others in a manner that honors God for the sake of Jesus' name. And in this way, truth will be advanced and we will be co-workers in it. So that's about those who spend their lives on the Gospel. But we know also that there are those who spend their lives on themselves. It's not only those who spend their lives for the Gospel within a church, but there are people like Diotrephes here. And this is quite simply just the reality. Look again at verses 9 and 10. John says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. What exactly is Diotrephes' problem? Not everyone assumes the worst motives of Diotrephes. Some wonder if Diotrephes was a young church leader who was tired of the old apostle John acting like a bishop over the church. Others think that he was zealously trying to protect the church. After all, according to 2 John, it wasn't only good teachers that went out from John's church. There were false teachers that were going out. Maybe Diotrephes just wanted to protect the church, protect the flock. He wanted everyone to be careful who they supported until there was proper time to check the theology of these missionaries. And then others wonder if he just had some kind of falling out with John. Whatever is going on, John makes it clear Diotrephes was living for himself. And first John says that Diotrephes speaks selfishly. He speaks selfishly. In verse 10, John says that he spreads malicious words. He's gossiping. He's doing what Paul warns against in 1 Timothy 5, verse 13. He's talking nonsense and saying things that he ought not to say. He's a busybody. He's filling his spare time making these negative assertions about other saints, and it's slander, and it's wrong. Friends, all of us in this room have a very dangerous weapon, and it's located right on our face. It's our mouth. The mouth has an incredible ability to destroy. And we've heard the Proverbs, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And we all know that that is not true. We sometimes allow our mouths to say things, often about other brothers and sisters in Christ, without considering whether it would really be useful for building up. Currently, one of my greatest concerns, at least within my church context, is the way that people are influenced by the Christians that they follow on social media. The talking points that they read on social media become their talking points in life. And in the name of truth and zeal, they take on the online personalities of the online community and they bring it into their own community, even though it's very unlikely that these people online act the same way in their offline community. And the result is that everyone who talks like this Everybody who talks to them walks away torn down rather than built up. Brothers and sisters, remember that like water rushing out of a dam, once words leave your mouth, you can never scoop them back up. Speak carefully. Tweet carefully. Post carefully. Speak carefully. Speak gently. As far as you are able, live peaceably with all, especially brothers and sisters in Christ. And do be careful about what you say about other brothers and sisters in Christ. Did you notice that even here, John doesn't call Gaius to confront Diotrephes? Do you see that? He doesn't tell Gaius to warn others about him. There may be a time and a place for that. Particularly when those first order theology issues are involved. But at least on this matter, John simply says, look, I'm gonna handle this myself when I get there. Well, Geatraves doesn't just speak selfishly, he also lives self- selfishly. John tells us that this is a man who loves to be first. This selfishness comes out by his refusal to welcome John. He he rejects the apostles' authority. And he then goes on to reject other true believers as well. And unlike Gaius, who's walking in truth and love, Diotrephes is hostile to those who serve the gospel. Moreover, he even stops those who want to help the gospel workers and he puts them out of the church. It it seems it seems like Diotrephes is exercising a wrong form of church discipline here. I think this just reminds us that there's a very real presence sometimes, of hurtful people, even within the church. Sometimes churches make decisions that aren't right. Now how should we respond when unessential and yet possibly still important decisions are made that are against our own desires? Well, notice that John doesn't tell Gaius to forsake the church. Do you see that? there's this big problem here, but John doesn't tell him to leave. He doesn't even tell Gaius to make a big commotion about it within the congregation or or go confront Diotrephes himself. It seems that John is the one who has been sinned against and so John is the one who's going to take initiative in responding. But Gaius? He's to just continue living faithfully for the Gospel even within the church. Maybe the best thing we can do when dealing with difficult situations within the church is to take the advice of someone I read uh, just this last week. He said, I try to concentrate on now and on eternity. I try to forget yesterday. I don't worry about tomorrow. And instead, I concentrate on now and eternity. I think that's a perspective that allows us to live in peace at peace, in difficult church situations, and deal with non-essentials with peace and charity. Friends, we need to have such a confidence in God's sovereign control, such a confidence in the end, that we don't become overly preoccupied with problems, that it affects our ability to speak and act with grace. You know, sometimes we have to confront problems, and I'm not denying that. But if we find ourselves always and overly concerned with the problems, we will become distracted and hindered from the love and hospitality that God has called us to. I think an appropriate confidence in eternity, along with theological triage and a commitment to love, I think that helps us keep the right balance. And you remember that John does say that he will confront Diotrephes. And we don't know if Diotrephes listened to him or not. But we do know that all people will give an account to God and we can trust Him who judges justly. But it's also true that you and I, one day, are going to give an account before God for the words that we say and the way that we live. Will we be found spending our lives for the Gospel? Loving and helping others like Gaius? Or not? Years ago, I shared the gospel uh, many times over the course of a couple years with a young Chinese friend. And ultimately, what finally helped him come to faith in Jesus was, in his words, seeing over and over again that Christians are people who put Jesus first, others second, and themselves last. And I praise God that my friend saw such wonderful examples of Christians in the church who spend their lives for the gospel. But sadly, 3 John reminds us that within the church, there are also people like Diotrephes. And he reminds us of both the reality and the danger of those who claim to be Christians, but who place themselves first. Ultimately, Diotrephes' sin is self-centeredness. I thank God that self-centeredness is not ultimately the way of Jesus. Because Jesus, though he was God, humbled himself by becoming a man, even a servant, by dying on the cross for sinners like us. And thank God that my friend saw so many Christians who were like Gaius. He saw Christians who loved and welcomed and served others with such generosity and grace that it ultimately caused him to turn from his own sin and trust in Jesus. And I believe that it's going to be people like Gaius who spur us on in our own love for Christ, and who best help others to turn to Christ in faith. So I pray the Lord will give us many more Gaiuses, more John Paytons, and may we in this room spend our lives for the Gospel rather than for ourselves and see wonderful fruit come from that. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that You would help us in these ways, that You would help us to spend our lives for the Gospel. We pray that we would be a loving, hospitable people who are willing to embrace all who trust in Christ, who trust in the true gospel, even as we hold our conviction strongly. Lord, make us a a hospitable, kind, generous people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.